Welcome guys to the Revive Stronger podcast. I'm your host as always, Steve Hall, and we have another exciting guest on the show today. And I may mispronounce the name. I think a lot of people do end up mispronouncing the name, um, but yeah. Bjorg Fagerli, is that good enough? Is that about right or is that completely off? No, well, sort of. It's Berg, yeah, like Berg. Most people just say Berg. Uh, and Fagerli. Fagerli, so, ah, yes. Yeah, Björg is actually uh, a, a woman's name here in Norway, but, um, you know, I got my feminine side, so <laughs> I can accept that. <laughs> I'm terrible with names regardless. I'm proper British and can't actually set, do any other kind of languages at all, so I apologize. Yeah, don't worry about it. My name is really hard to pronounce. <laughs> so, uh, Björg, uh, I'm going to say it wrong. I'm not even going to try. Berg. Um, just say Borg. Borg. Most people just say Borg. Borg is a leading expert in the field, uh, as many of you will have known in kind of a lot of the listeners here are bodybuilders, physique athletes or coach, uh, that sort of person. So they've no doubt heard of your name or at least seen it written down and no doubt heard of MyoReps, which I think is almost probably more popular than your actual name, which is quite impressive, to be honest, um, to have come out with such a thing that yeah is now more renowned than the actual person who created it and maybe people don't even realize that you were the creator originally of the the system which we'll definitely be talking more about um but something i found very interesting about yourself was the fact you talked about um not being kind of genetically gifted in the muscular and kind of that department you were never kind of just jacked from a young age but um i believe you could read by the age of four so you found that you were obviously a very intelligent person you could pick up things really quickly um, but despite not being maybe genetically blessed, you are in really, really good shape. Um, and I've seen, well, I, I've actually seen you in person back in um, the first Alan Aragon conference. Um, we actually kind of met, not met, but you were in the audience. I was in the audience um, back in the UK. Um, yeah. And uh, yeah, I, I had no idea who you were at the time, but um, as I've kind of grown in the industry and um, you have as well over the years, it's been really cool to see that. Um, so yeah, Bjorg is in tremendous shape and is obsessed with how the body works um, and mm-hmm. now maintains this current shape, uh, uh, well, by your words, kind of with little effort, um, which is really nice and the listeners will kind of be now like, oh, kind of great shape, easy, and uh, they'll be listening in tightly now. So. Um, what you want to do and what you do now is as a coach because you find your methods work almost better for other people than yourself which yeah. is kind of demotivating in some sorts but that's that that's the beauty of being a coach and I've certainly experienced the same thing and it's exciting to get kind of really really kind of elite athletes who you, you wish you could be that person but genetics plays such a large role in things so um Bjork is great at adapting his methods to the individual and created the Norway, Norwegian training system called Release Your Potential. Also has a nutritional model people might have heard of, the biorhythm diet, uh, based on recent understandings of circadian rhythms, which is incredibly exciting. I know you've talked about that on other podcasts. Mm. Um, and obviously created MyoReps. So sorry for the complete ramble. Um, is there anything else you think the listeners should know about you or uh, you should introduce to them? No, I think that's one of the most uh, complete introductions uh, I've ever heard. So uh, <laughs> that's uh, that's awesome. Uh, I can't really think of much to add to that. Well, I guess 
I did contribute to the energy blueprint with the Ari Witten, uh, you know, sort of the nutrition modules there. And uh, I think that that's a really great program. And I learned a lot from doing the research uh, for that. And obviously the whole circadian rhythm uh, field has been uh, very interesting to me the last few years. And I've written tons about it um, in social media, but uh, I've also sort of um, evolved my methods and, and, um, and, and sort of line, lined them all up. So, so it, it fits sort of into a more complete picture uh, right now. And um, I, I really feel I'm at a point where where I've I've gotten a better perspective, like a more holistic perspective on the whole process, and and I think most of all the ability to see what what clients or what what type of demographic uh, should do this type of diet or this type of training program is is uh, one of the I think you could avoid probably 95% of the online uh, debates if people were, were just to define context, you know, to define the, their target groups. It seems like people are just, you know, well, this guy is talking about advanced clients and this guy is talking about average or even untrained because this study says this and the other study says something different. And, and they're sort of... You know, on on a foundational level, they're they're in complete agreement, but they they can't see that because they're talking about different different types of, of people, and so I, th I think having that bird's eye perspective and being able to 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 accurately place people into the proper context, even I mean even even an advanced client, if if their stress level is is uh, you know sky high, if if they have just academic stress or like me being in the middle of a moving process uh, that will affect how you should train and uh, and eat as well and, and people seem to just completely ignore that or, or don't even have the understanding to to put that into uh, the context so 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 yeah i think i think this last i mean i'm still learning i still learn something new all the time especially working with clients and seeing what works and um I think uh, you know, but but still, this these last couple of years, uh, I'm I'm sort of I, I sort of feel like I'm I'm getting the pieces of the puzzle to to sort of fit together. I'm I'm getting a clearer picture, mm -hmm. and and it's, it's it's like they always say that even with new research and new science and, and new knowledge, the picture is never going to change. You know, the picture is always going to stay the same, but the more details and the more knowledge we, we achieve, uh, the more detail we will see in this big picture. And, and I think that's an important uh, uh, metaphor to, to keep in mind when we, you know, before we start arguing online on, on what's the best. No, yeah, completely. You get um, kind of, you, you hear the, the most common thing a lot of the listeners probably realize is kind of personal trainers who then give their own training program to their clients. Like your client may, you might be a bodybuilder, but you're kind of the, the mother of two coming in and kind of just training is not a bodybuilder. Yeah. So they're not going to respond the same way to your training split. Um, and like you said, I mean, I think individualization whilst a smaller kind of maybe a smaller priority um after kind of bigger picture things it is something that's highly important um and i think as a coach that's when you really realize that because you work with so many different people and you realize there's yeah. so many different ways that work for people and 
as you mentioned, lifestyle is absolutely huge. Um, it yeah. impacts so many things and it can actually be the difference between kind of growing a, a lot of muscle and not growing a lot of muscle between two individuals. So no, that's really interesting. And no, I'm really glad that you're, you're still learning um, and obviously <laughs> know a ton. Um, and we're yeah, going to yeah. start scraping away at that. And the first area I wanted to kind of start off with a broad kind of a stroke and talk about Maya reps, um, how mm. you came to develop it and then also just a kind of a general summary of what it is, and then we may end up kind of diving into that a bit further. Okay. Um, I think I first started developing it back in 2005, 2006. Um, uh, this was uh, back when uh, I started reading about like occlusion training and occlusion research. Um, and I also, I probably read multiple times the, the effect of frequency, volume, intensity, and, and whatever. I, I, I can't even remember the whole title, but it was Wormbaum's great meta review, just, just looking at the whole area of hypertrophy and even strength and, and, uh, and, and sort of how, how to make a muscle grow the most optimally. And... Uh, I just basically sent them an email to to Wernbaum and, uh, and and connected with him. And um, I also discussed a lot with uh, this guy called Dan Moore, who used to be on the original hypertrophy specific training HST yeah. discussion board, along with Brian Haycock, and and we just sort of uh, had this great group think, this this brainstorm thing where we mapped out sort of the. Um, uh, you know the 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 current science of the times and and the current understanding and and, and sort of what what pathways uh, and, and what models fit in the framework of uh, trying to create the most hypertrophy. And so I, I sort of uh, came came from this perspective of um, uh, muscle activation because that seemed to be sort of the main driver of hypertrophy even with low loads uh, so when you use occlusion training you you sort of uh, occlude or or partially uh, block the blood flow to a limb using like an external blood pressure cuff or, or elastic band or something um, by doing that, you sort of create an hypoxic environment in a muscle, and, and this uh, sort of metabolic stress condition uh, increases uh, muscle activation levels uh, tremendously. And so it, the, the original research um, looked at, you know, even down to 20 or 30 percent of one rep max loads, and, and they were able to create very significant and impressive hypertrophy in, in uh in people and, and, and obviously this would be great for rehabbing and for elderly and for uh, you know people that for some reason needed to use lower loads um, and so uh, in my in my uh, mind I, I would think that you could also create this occlusion effect by simply keeping constant tension on the muscle and um, I was obviously right, since uh, I think everyone that has tried um, to do that sort of training can really feel that that burn, you know, that intense burn that you also create from using external cuffs. And, and also the fact that to, to create a potent uh, stimulus for muscle growth, you need to reach high muscle fiber activation levels. And, and it's not that... 
the metabolic stress in itself is a driver for hypertrophy, but the metabolic stress increases the mechanical stress from a given uh, load. Mm-hmm. And, and so it's, it's sort of just a, a roundabout way to, to achieve um, the stimulus that you would achieve from uh, like heavier loads. Um, and, and so it, it sort of evolved from there. And, and the first, actually the first method used sort of like a cluster rep approach, just a rest pause cluster rep type approach where you just did sets of five. Uh, and then sets of ten, even at lighter loads, uh, but but you know, sort of in a roundabout way, I figured out. Well, why not just do the first set to failure or very very close to it mm-hmm. to achieve that high muscle fiber activation level as soon as possible, and then insert its short rest periods to sort of stay at that point to to take advantage of that metabolic stress. And, uh, and sort of, um, if, if you consider the last few reps of a set, the most effective reps, since that's when you reach the high muscle fiber activation levels, and that's where all the muscle fibers are exposed to the mechanical stimulus, then why not recreate those last few reps instead of doing sort of a five-minute rest and then you know building up to that muscle activation level? Mm-hmm. So, uh, so I sort of thought, well, why not just attach these effective reps in a rest-pause fashion after that activation set? And, 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 and that's sort of, uh, you know, many people will notice that this is similar to, to Dante Trudell's DC training, like dog crap training, where he just goes to failure, short rest, go to failure, short rest, go to fa- failure. Uh, my method is, is different because here you try to balance fatigue. So you're not intentionally chasing failure. Mm-hmm. You're just sort of getting to the point of fatigue so that you will achieve high muscle fiber activation levels, but balancing that fatigue so that you are able to get more reps at that activation level. Mm-hmm. So, so you know, the, you, you, you should be able to get, let's say, 15 to 20 reps on the first set, and then five, 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 five. You know, if yep. you have a high work capacity and if you balance fatigue uh, in that order. But you know, any, anywhere from uh, like ten, fifteen, up to twenty-five effective reps in a given Myrup set is is the norm, and and it's a very time-saving uh, way of training. And and for some reason, I mean, I've been discussing this with uh, Wernbaum for several years now, and and there's like unpublished data because obviously. It requires a lot of money to do a proper scientific study of this, but there's some very interesting muscle activation um, mechanisms going on that you, you sort of reach these high spikes in muscle activation, even at, at really light loads. And there's also some very interesting like spikes of, of uh, hypertrophy signaling going on that, that we still, you know, I, I don't know everything because mm-hmm. there's just not research on it. But but uh, definitely some some very you know very effective things going on with with this method in particular that just seems to be I've seen some impressive gains in in anything from um, you know intermediate lifters beginners even um, although I think it might be too intense for beginners mm-hmm. uh, but but especially up to the intermediate advanced level I I, I can really see some impressive gains in those lifters even after you know several years of uh, 
of stagnation basically on, mm-hmm. on heavy lifting. So yeah, I think that's the the shortest uh, description uh, I can think of right now. No, amazing. And um, just to give a, a kind of summary of what a generic set might look like, is it correct to say that you kind of do a, a 20 to 30 rep max um, or towards like one rep in reserve, say, um, and then you have short rest periods, so kind of three to four deep breaths, then go for another set, and that's typically three to five reps, and then again, that short rest period, three to four deep breaths, and then go for another set, and then however many sets you do might be, deter- I mean, that might be the way you progress, you might add sets, or you might auto-regulate um, when you can't achieve, say, three reps, then that's where you stop. Um, is that kind of, if someone was thinking, if I want to do my reps today, how would I go about it? Would that be an okay approach to go about it? Yeah, yeah, uh, that's 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 pretty close to it. So I think it really shines at lighter lighter loads because mm-hmm. um, once you get into the six to eight rep range, then the loads are heavy enough to cause high muscle activation level from the very first rep. So there's not like a huge advantage of my reps uh, at those loads, but. Let's say starting at 12 to 15 rep maxes and all the way up to like 30 rep maxes, I, I think, yeah, my reps is really going to shine and, and be a very time effective way to train. So the first rep to failure, short rest, three to five reps, short rest, three to five reps. I just tend to say, you know, go three, um, um, yeah, three to five, three to five, three to five. So we have three to five deep breaths rest, three to five reps, three to five sets in that Myrops series. Awesome. I think that's just to simplify it. And I I don't know if you may well have said this in the book, but I don't remember reading anything where you spoke of, of which to the listeners, there is a Myrops book. I'm not sure if you've released it yet. Um, it is released. Awesome. So I'll make sure that's linked below. So everyone listening to this now, you can find this all in depth within the book. But what is the, is there really much difference to it, to occlusion training? Um, do you think there are kind of any benefits to one over the other or are they just variants of a similar thing? Well, you get a more, uh, sort of control over the occlusion effect with the occlusion cuffs. Uh, the problem with that is obviously that it it, it requires some equipment, mm-hmm. and it does require some knowledge on how to tie, where to tie, and, and not to tighten it too much, and, and all that stuff. In the lab, they use um, they use uh, data controlled, sort of automatically controlled blood pressure cuffs. Yeah. I've, I've tried one of these, and, and it's really awesome, you know. And, and you get sort of just the right amount of pressure. Um, but but my reps does have seem to have some advantages. There was even one study com- comparing blood flow restriction with and without the cuff. So basically, a free flow condition where where they just kept constant tension on the muscle using leg ex- extensions, um, and and where they saw uh, um, a pretty uh, significant increase in in satellite cell activation. And so both conditions saw satellite cell activation, and, and uh, uh, this is also sort of a, an additional benefit of, uh, of my uh, training because you need uh, satellite cell activation to to um, increase the potential for muscle growth. Uh, it's, it's sort of part of the process. Mm-hmm. I go into this in the, in the ebook, so I'm not going to yes. expand on it. But um, I, I think that. Um, 
occlusion training should actually be done at a lighter load. Uh, since it doesn't seem to have any additional benefits at heavy, heavier loads. Whereas, uh, so for instance, from 30 to 50% of 1RM, occlusion training with uh, elastic bands or cuffs seem to be uh, better. Whereas my reps uh, seem to really shine from sort of the 40 to 60% of 1RM max range. And so you can lift slightly heavier loads but uh, you do need to keep constant tension on muscle to get the maximum effect. Mm-hmm. Although, you know, some lifters are actually use, using it for squats and deadlifts, and I personally think that's crazy yeah. because, you know, <laughs> if you ever tried it, you would know that yeah. it's just a way to, you know, play with death, in my opinion. But um, it, it, it's, it's sort of... Um, it's more user friendly, obviously, since you, you're not relying on external equipment. But you do need to be careful with exercise selection uh, when, when doing MyRep so that you you don't do something that makes you run out of breath way before you tax the muscle or or uh, increase lower back stress, for instance. So I wouldn't do you know bent rows with MyReps since you sort of need to hold the lower back statically, mm-hmm. and, and it's really taxing on the lower back. Perfect. No, I think I think just thinking about the two and there's definite pros and cons to each. Uh, having done both myself, I think my reps can actually be used across a broader range of exercises in general because, I mean, you're kind of limited by the cuffs of where you can occlude and what muscle groups that then impacts, kind of the arms yeah. and the thighs and maybe the calves as well. You can get some good training effects. Um, but with my reps, I've done that on kind of a variety of different things. Um, but just to explain to the listeners, because you talked about constant tension, and I think this is an important part of my reps. Um, yeah. What what is constant tension? Well, so for instance, in a bicep curl, um, you can release the tension on the muscle by sort of um, um, uh, stretching your elbows all the way out at the bottom. And uh, also at the top, if you lean back and sort of lift with your shoulders, you can also unload the biceps at the top. And this sort of gives a brief rest where blood flow can, you know, uh, start uh, start going again. And um, it's it's uh, due to the lazy nature of uh, most people. You know, that's the way people tend to cheat mm-hmm. when they train. You know, to, they avoid keeping constant tension on the muscle because it's really hard. Yeah. And, and that's sort of the point. You need to make the exercise more hard to increase muscle activation so that you can can and get the training effect you're after. Mm-hmm. So you should, in, in, you know, try as much as possible to avoid releasing tension on the muscle. Uh, so at the bottom of a movement, Avoid sort of um, like in, in a bicep curl or a lateral race, don't let the arms hang straight down. Yeah. Stop just before the outstretched position. Mm-hmm. And at the top as well, just, just sort of squeeze and contract the muscle intentionally. Try to sort of just, uh, you know, um, like flexing your bicep, you know, at the yeah. top. Just, just try to really get that contraction going. Mm-hmm. So by focusing on the contraction, you can you can get a, a really intense uh, blood flow occlusion effect and, and thus increase the muscle activation levels. You won't get the same number of reps, but, you know, that's sort of um, beside the point. That's, that's not really important anyway. Reps don't seem to dictate the training effect. It's more of... 
reaching high muscle fiber activation levels and get the mechanical tension to to sort of uh, achieve that signaling within the muscle internally. Mm-hmm. No, perfect. And I guess that that comes back to your example of the bent over row, in which oftentimes we do release a bit of tension, like at the bottom when we're fully stretched out, and then at the top, um, it could. If you're trying to do it in that, I can definitely see how that's going to create a lot of problems with the kind of back positioning and things like this. Whereas something like a machine row, where your chest is supported and you can keep it under constant tension quite comfortably. So, no, brilliant description. Exactly. Um, and we've talked a lot about effective reps, and something you talked about within the ebook um, is junk volume. Um, so, what is your definition of junk volume, and how do lifters end up kind of coming into maybe you call it a bit of a trap? Um, how do we end up hitting junk volume, and how do we avoid it? Yeah, good question. Because um, you know, looking at uh, the physiological response to training or any stressor, um, there's a certain dose needed to trigger uh, the adaptation. And um, uh, I think most people tend to underestimate or actually overestimate how much uh, stress you need to trigger the adaptation. And, and the metaphor I, I tend to like is uh, getting a, a suntan. So, say for instance, your your skin is pale white. You, you haven't been in the sun for all, all winter, and you go uh, you go outside when the sun is up, and to get a suntan, it it uh, it's it's uh, very wise to manage the dose and intensity, so the duration and the intensity of the stressor. In this case, sunlight, and if you just overdo it, you will get a sunburn. And that's a maladaptation. That means that you overdid the stress. Mm-hmm. So the body needs to repair itself before it can actually create an adaptation, a positive adaptation. And it's the same thing with training. You know, based on or, or depending on the level or sort of the the, the training you are used to, um, uh, the the intensity and the duration, like intensity defined as both the effort but also uh, the weight on the bar mm-hmm. and the time that load is able to um, uh, to work on the muscle needs to be cor- correctly proportioned in, in order to drive the, the positive adaptation. Mm-hmm. And, and looking at research both on um, – like what what in research is called recreationally trained, but also advanced lifters, there's a clear dose response curve um, that seems to like, like for instance, if you say one hard set, that can usually provide up to seventy, maybe eighty percent of the total training effect. So, like if you if you look at this on the curve, uh, most people tend to think it's a linear curve. So the more sets you do, the more training effect yeah. you get, but the same as with sunlight, there's a dose response curve that has a peak and then drops and goes down, you know, so you get a maladaptation. So one set can provide 70 to 80% of the maximum training effect in any, at any given time, but doubling or tripling that doesn't really double or triple the training adaptation. It, it seems to only get you up to maybe the 85 to 90% range. And all the way up to maybe four to six sets, it seems to taper off and flatten out. And, and this is where um, 
Because the muscle is very plastic, it's very adaptable, and it's it's able to be under constant tension and still adapt and grow and, and grow bigger. Um, but you have many different systems that that that's, uh, sort of slower and, and harder to to adapt. And um, connective tissue and joints, in particular, are really hard to. Uh, uh, to accommodate the loading, the constant loading, and and they they are sort of the the limitations in the in the system, and um, and and that's probably why when you go beyond the sort of four to six set range uh, in, uh, um, for a muscle group at any given workout, um, you you also create inflammation. And this inflammation takes some time to repair. And this is why if some people overdo volume and, and they, they don't balance it with the, with the frequency and have the needed recovery capacities, uh, then, then you, you hit a wall and you get this, this maladaptation. Mm -hmm. So, so it, it does seem as if being more conservative and trying to stay within sort of the one to three set range in my experience, for most people, um, it's, it's, uh, it's a better way to approach the training process because it allows you to recover faster, adapt faster, and also do another workout for that same muscle group faster. Uh, I just find it to be a better balance in, in terms of uh, the workload that uh, most people can tolerate. Mm -hmm. I will say, though, that, yeah, some studies do show better results with six, even up to eight sets. Um, but it does seem to require exceptional recovery cap capacities or that you do submaximal sets. So, for instance, there's one study showing eight sets of squats was better than five sets, or mm -hmm. I think it was four, four sets. But, I mean, try to do eight sets of squats to failure. No. Uh, you know, I, I doubt that most people would be able to do that in practice. Um, and so I just find that... Um, beyond a certain point, if you go beyond that sort of three to four set level, um, you get into the junk volume territory where I think each additional set provides just maybe one or two percent extra gains, mm -hmm. uh, but it does increase the demands for your recovery capacities. And, and this is where the whole overall lifestyle meets yeah. uh, optimal. You know, optimal meets, meets life, basically. Mm -hmm. yes. Most people can, can't really recover because they don't have the, the sleep, the nutrition, the, the stress management strategies, and the biorhythm in, in place to really handle that, that sort of training uh, stress. No, I, I completely can see that, and I can see it in myself, and you can see it with people as I, I think a lot of kind of people who are maybe kind of keep up to date with all the research somewhat and keep up to date with some of the big names in the industry, such as Brad Schoenfeld, obviously realizing and hearing training volume. Volume is really important for muscle growth and they may end up hearing and thinking that more volume is better and then just keep pushing, pushing, pushing. And like you've said, you end up getting into a trouble with that because you get diminishing returns for every additional kind of amount of volume that you're trying to add, which could in the end lead into junk volume and then whether or not, if, you, if you're not recovering, you're going to have to deload um, and you might be deloading kind of too frequently or kind of pulling back too frequently or just uh, even getting into periods of which, of which is difficult to, but overtraining um, or certainly mm -hmm. not productive training. So when you're talking about sets, was that sets um, per workout or was that sets per muscle group per week? I think you were saying referencing to a single workout. 
Yeah, single workout for sure. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Um, because I don't know if you've ever used them or you have any experience. So I don't know if this would be something you thought about. It just came to me off the top of my head is often um, people might use something like a down set where they might do like say four sets on maybe a top weight on a certain exercise like squats and then maybe put in two kind of 10 to 20% reduction in load down sets. Do you think that kind of gets around yeah. the issue? Like back off sets, drop sets, yeah. and all that stuff. Yeah, yeah, sure. Cool. I, th I think it's just another way to add volume, and, yep. and uh, there, there's some good research to indicate that maybe, yeah, drop sets can be more effective than, than traditional sets across, but uh, I think the main reason for that is simply that you achieve uh, a higher rate of uh, muscle activation, you know, because you, you, uh, you get more fatigue, basically, and, and so putting more effort into a drop set versus doing three sets across where maybe the first set or two is you know feels really easy mm -hmm. uh, i think that's sort of the main driver because at equal efforts uh it seems like three sets three regular sets are pretty similar to uh, a drop set like a triple drop okay cool. uh, but but it's it's just another way to sort of view hard sets i, I like to use like hard sets yeah. where you you know reach high effort levels mm -hmm. and when we're talking about high effort levels do you have a particular cap like an RPE or a reps in reserve where you're like, if you go below this, it's probably not hard enough. Yeah, I think like RPE 7, like where you have three or more reps in reserve is, is sort of the minimum threshold. Mm -hmm. If you do that, you certainly need to do more sets and, and you get into sort of a cluster territory uh, type training or, or even, you know, you can do high volume training. Like the Norwegian powerlifters are known for doing high volume training, yep. but they they often do only 70 to 80 percent of one max and 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 very often like two to three reps in reserve on the first sets mm -hmm. so it's, it's by doing some maximal sets they get more practice and uh, with, with a certain lift and they're also able to do higher frequency so you know norwegian powerlifters are known for doing four to six six uh, um, bouts or, or uh, you know um, uh, have a training frequency of four to six times per week per lift or per muscle mm -hmm. yeah and that's i mean you said like you said there it's incredibly important for listeners to realize they're not training kind of absolutely pulls out every single time otherwise they would for sure not be able to recover from that and they'd be falling into that issue that you've already spoken about and um on a related topic to this and something you've spoken about and was in the book was the fact that you kind of it wasn't i don't know if that saying you don't believe but you definitely don't purposely overreach your clients um some kind of in some training programs you get um people kind of getting to a point of which they purposely try and overreach to then super compensate potentially in kind of a deload or taper um i'd love to hear kind of your thoughts and reasons behind kind of not overreaching well i've yet to see any solid evidence that, that this achieves uh, better adaptations than simply finding an optimal stimulus um, so, so I, I like to see a, a continuous and, and constant and, and regular increase in uh, in training results. I, I like to see that the strength is going up, that they feel motivated, that they feel good, uh, that everything is working fine. Uh, I, I think that the whole overreaching concept uh, stems from. Um, 
Well, I think it stems from from sports, where um, it is based on like in season and off season uh, training, and and so where you are forced to do periods of less training or even rest, then sort of running or building up momentum for that period, and and I think it also stems from the observation that some people that have been training really hard for very long, then they get injured or sick, and it needs to take some time off. To get back to training and see, hey, wow, I'm, I'm stronger. Mm-hmm. And then you sort of create this whole concept of, well, what if you did this intentionally? You overreached, then did a deload, and then you would observe uh, a boost in in, uh, in strength. Mm-hmm. But I think from from a, like a biological perspective, it doesn't make sense that you should do something now to achieve a result later, uh, because adaptation is acute and chronic. And so just just um, optimizing the whole stimulus would allow you to reach a more constant adaptation and continuous adaptation. Mm-hmm. So I think if, if you're if you're stagnating if, and if you're uh, having signs of overreaching or overtraining, you're you're, uh, you're overdoing it. You're into the junk volume territory. Mm-hmm. And in that scenario, I guess that is when the deload would have to come because you're just getting up diminishing returns and you're not going to kind of see your investment come through. Exactly, yeah. No, I think I've experienced both approaches. I've seen both approaches work pretty damn well. And like you said, there's no evidence. I don't think there's necessarily any evidence saying it doesn't work, but obviously there's not really any evidence supporting it. So it's very much down to kind of as a programmer or as a coach, what system and setup is working for your clients. And uh, obviously this slower kind of the incremental approach that you're using is working really well. So um, no, no, that's fantastic and great to hear. Um, yeah, and I mean, it's also very individualized because I have volume, I have a volume respondent client that really respond to, to just being driven hard and, and thrive on that. But, yeah. but uh, it's, it's also, you know, it's just very individual and, and even based on personality types. So I, I sort of, I'm, I'm all across the board in terms of volume or, and, and, and how I program clients. Well, and this is sort of uh, this is sort of the, the problem with debates online that they're arguing over studies where they're just do, you know using an average of, of subjects, whereas coaches that work individual with clients were able to adapt it to each individual individual clients and and you know average it's simply not good enough for me. I want to you know get the best out of each and every client I work with. Mm-hmm. And well, it's, this is why cookie cutter programs, as all the listeners will know, aren't the best because you can't have a one size fits all for everyone. And yeah, completely, we come back to that the importance of individualization. It's just so important to really know yourself as a client and know your know your clients as well. So no, it's really actually very refreshing to hear that. And I'm glad you brought mm-hmm. up that you have people you do this with, but also other people that you have to use other approaches with to get them towards their most optimal result. Um, yeah. And actually on that line, I know in the book you have some kind of approximate numbers for kind of different clientele in terms of number of, of hard sets that they might do in a particular week. Um, mm. If you just mind mind going over those, why maybe that certain client can deal with that certain amount, um, it would be really interesting to hear. Yeah, I think most intermediate clients would you know, find their optimal results fall right around the 9 to 18 sets per week uh, range. And the lower end for those, uh, you know, challenged in terms of their recovery capacities, 
and the higher end for people just having all their ducks lined up, you know, for you know their, their sleep and, and their biorhythm and nutrition and everything, and and low stress uh, obviously because stress, just academic stress, just you know worrying about exams or whatever mm-hmm. or deadlines will will can, can actually double their recovery time from a given workouts. Um, and so yeah, around nine to eighteen sets per week is uh, per muscle group is is where most people will fall. Perfect. And when we're talking about an intermediate lifter, do you have a definition you like to use for that? I think in the book you had a link out to um, kind of weightlifting standards. Is that right? Yeah, I just tend to use that uh, mm-hmm. in general, and then I sort of um, I, I sort of recalibrate that according to the ge- genetic potential of a given client. So if I'm working with someone with you know narrow clavicles and and uh, you know ankles and, and wrists and, and all that stuff, then then their genetic potential is lower, and hence I will you know consider them more advanced if they're already at a, at a considerable strength level. So it is sort of a, yeah, it's both an art and a science. Mm-hmm. Perfect. And just a, a, I mean, a final question from me, and unless there's anything else you want to add after this, when you are kind of, you talked about the nine to eighteen sets. What are your, what are you tracking as a coach for your clients to make sure that you're kind of maybe on the optimal end for that individual? What is your, what are you looking for to see? Oh, maybe actually I should remove some volume, or you should add any. Well, I, I like to see strength increasing continuously. I, I find a, an increment level, uh, usually around 1% to 2% per week. They should be able to do the same amount of reps at an incrementally higher load, or they should be able to do more reps at the given load consistently. Uh, I also look at like body weight and, and measurements uh, to see that their body composition is gradually improving, you know, the, they obviously might be gaining some weight, but keeping measurements uh, the same, or their measurements might be going down. And, you know, so it's it's just all sort of uh, of uh, measurements going on there. But but also the subjective feedback from the client is very important. So the client should be enjoying the program. They should, um, you know, it it should be hard workouts, but but they should be. You know, motivated to to do them, and they should uh, you know just like going to the gym. Basically, yeah. if if they hate the program, if they hate uh, given exercise, if they hate a rep range, if whatever, you know, is it, something they don't just don't like. If they hate me, then you know, obviously, <laughs> I need to change something. So yeah, I, I tend to look at many many in the indicators uh, to judge that a program is is working for them. And if something is working really well and they feel very recovered and and you know even uh, at uh, uh, at the lower end of the range, then I can play with increasing the volume. But I, I don't really like the concept of trying to chase volume and and and, and the highest uh, possible volume or intensity or frequency. In the beginning of working with a client, I I, I, I prefer to work up to that mm-hmm. instead of just you know bombing someone to smithereens. No, I think that's a, a really good take home from the listeners, especially those of us who are maybe 
kind of volume junkies and we love it to start off with the lower end of the recommendations, then you can always work up um, exactly. rather than kind yeah. of starting too high and then you have to just keep chopping back and um, people always hate cutting back on volume whereas when you get more it's always kind of a bit of a pleasure so um, yeah, and I would, I would also recommend people be proactive so instead of thinking uh, of the program as a template that you should follow no matter what uh, you know be honest with yourself and look at your lifestyle if you're going into like exams or deadlines or, or uh, a divorce or, or something really tough on you then you know, reduce your intensity, frequency, volume, or all three mm-hmm. to compensate for that. No, perfect. Um, no, it's a really good actual uh, kind of actual end point to the podcast, I think, unless there's anything else you want to add. Um, I think the overall message for me and the, the big take home that I've got from talking to you today is just the importance of actual individualization and being honest with yourself um, and not just mm-hmm. doing what you think you should do and really have a think about how you're responding to something. Yeah, I think that's a great summer. I have nothing further to add. Oh, perfect. Well, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Um, I think it's it's been a great chat and I hope that kind of you've enjoyed it and you get lots of kind of good feedback and I'm sure we will. Um, if people want to learn more about MyReps or any of the other things that you're involved with, where should they kind of reach out to you? Uh, they can go to my website, borgefagerly.com. Uh, that's, that's the best way to find me here. Perfect. Now I'll make sure that's linked below. And I know you've got some good kind of Facebook um, kind of uh, posts on there as well that are really interesting. So I'll make sure. You can check out my my official page as well on Facebook. So yeah. I definitely want people to check that out as well because there's definitely some good kind of interactions on that page. So yeah, thank you for joining me and thank you guys for all listening. Take care and we'll talk to you soon. Thank you for having me.